You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is uh, Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Andrew Skull, who is a professor of sociology emeritus at University of California, San Diego, also the author of many books. Um, I think you, you recently published something called Madness, a, a short introduction, which um, leans a little bit on some of your older work, right? Madhouses, right. Mad Doctors, and Mad Men. There's another book just called Madhouse. There's The Hysteria, A Disturbing History, Madness and Civilization, uh, which is like a history of insanity, psychiatry and its discontents, and most recently, this book, Desperate Remedies, uh, Psychiatry's Turbulent Quest to Cure Mental Illness. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you very much, uh, Gregory. Good to be here. Now, this book, I think it recounts, I mean, it's focusing primarily on American history for the last uh, 100 plus years. And, you know, it tells a somewhat disappointing tale, pessimistic tale, because it. I think it, when you're describing the history of psychiatry, you're really kind of recounting a history of wishful thinking, right? I mean, you know, mental illness is something that we've it's been with us as long as we've been humans, but we haven't made the kind of progress that we've made with respect to physical illness, right? And so people have been gravitating towards kind of cures and remedies, most of whom, most of which have been kind of quack remedies or in- inadequate. Um, and, and these hopes have risen and then b- been dashed. Uh, and there's just a lot of, there's a lot of bad science that's been yeah. in this world. So, I mean, is it, yeah. first of all, is it true that are we sicker or healthier or is, is there just a constant amount of mental illness throughout human history? Oh, that's an enormously difficult question to answer with any uh, real security. But I think this is a very important issue. It touches on all of us at some point in our lives. Either if we're unlucky, it touches us directly or those close to us. Certainly it's effect on daily life in society and the amount of costs that it imposes on everybody, the suffering that it brings, are a fact that we have to come to terms with. I'm not somebody who argues that there's been no progress at all. What I do suggest is that the progress we have made is quite limited. And we need to be aware, I think, of how complex this problem is and how resistant it has been to easy solutions and how very often we've been seduced by claims that a breakthrough is at hand or has arrived only for those hopes to be disappointed. Fundamentally, one of the problems with serious mental illness, and there's a wide range of things, of course, that fall within the ambit of psychiatry, but for the moment, let's focus on things that we generally refer to these days as schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, major depression. And if we look at those and we ask, do we understand the origins of these diseases, if we take them as diseases, do we have a good grasp of the pathology, what it is that produces these disturbances of reason and emotion and memory and so forth? And sadly, the answer for the most part there is that the etiology of these conditions remains a mystery. There are periodic claims to the contrary, but they largely don't hold up. Now, having said that, when we don't understand a disorder or a disease, 
or at least the origins of it, that doesn't mean that we can't come up with attempts to alleviate it, uh, even in the face of background ignorance. We can find symptomatic treatments for a disorder uh, whose origins remain veiled in, in mystery. And to some degree, we can say in the last three quarters of a century particularly, but we can look back earlier than that for some things, that we have some treatments, some interventions, which provide a measure of symptomatic relief for some people. And that's not to be sneezed at, given the amount of suffering we're talking about here. If you have something that alleviates some of the more serious symptoms, that damps down the hallucinations and delusions, for example, that accompany schizophrenia, or that modifies the extreme anxiety and sadness and emotional flattening that accompany major depression, these are not things to minimize or refuse to recognize. On the other hand, and here we're talking about the events of the last 75 years, whereas my book addresses about two centuries, we're mostly talking here about the psychopharmacological revolution. And like many, indeed almost all, pharmaceutical interventions, drugs have not only the effect that we seek, but like any medical intervention, often what we call side effects, which are really effects we don't want that come along with the thing we do. And the problem with antipsychotics and antidepressants is that those side effects are very serious. The amount of symptomatic relief that these drugs provide is very variable. Uh, and in the case of uh, antidepressants in particular, uh, not particularly strong when we look at the scientific evidence. And so we're looking at Band-Aids, and if I'm bleeding, a Band-Aid is useful, but if the source of that bleeding is something chronic, and life-threatening and very serious, we're not satisfied with simply having a Band-Aid available. So, you know, when I talk about these side effects, let's look at antipsychotics for the moment. I should say, as a preamble, nobody had really thought that drug treatments of mental illness were possible really until they arrived. They'd been the use of opiates and other sedatives, barbiturates, to calm patients down, but no sense that might cure the underlying condition or seriously affect it for the better. When antidepressants and, and antipsychotics came along in the 1950s, their discovery was purely accidental. And that's a fascinating story in and of itself. Yeah, I was, I was amazed where you described there was the first, I think, Thorazine was invented it's, without any clue as to what it could possibly be for. Nobody had a sense that, there were, that this was a possible way of attacking mental illness. What happened there... And wait, is, didn't it come out um, of dye, dye production or something? Yes, it, like a, it did. Like many of the pharmaceuticals, aspirin, for example, a whole bunch of things that we use without thinking these days, developed really as side products from the chemical dye industry, particularly in Germany in the 19th century. So all kinds of compounds were discovered, and some of them turned out to have pretty important therapeutic effects. Promazine, which is the particular entity we're talking about that was marketed here as Thorazine, was something that actually had been discovered in the 1870s, but nobody had a use for it. It uh, was 
an antihistamine. And during World War II, uh, antihistamines had come to the fore and been used to treat some things. And the pharmaceutical industry was expanding ma- rapidly after the war, driven in part by the discovery of penicillin, which was a real magic bullet. In that case, right, I mean, syphilis yeah. had been, I think you, you said syphilis was yeah. responsible for 25% of the of male the, admissions, the, pa- yeah. the patients in the asylums, mm-hmm. right? And right. that was sort of, you know, wiped out in a stroke, right? Will almost, yes, almost. Sadly, it's still a little bit present and indeed increasing a bit because people don't take steps quickly enough to, well, either to avoid infection or to get it treated promptly. But yes, compared to the scourge that syphilis was in the late 19th, early 20th century, the advent of penicillin and other antibiotics has been critical. But what penicillin did, because it effectively dealt with a whole range of bacteriological infection, it got people used to the idea that a pill could actually be curative, that it was a kind of magic bullet. For example, if your kid is suffering from strep throat, that's actually quite potentially serious because the same bacterium can attack the heart valves and lead lead to long-term heart problems. So having these drugs around was enormously important, and it gave a big fillip to the idea that if you mobilize science in the laboratory to cure disease, you could make great strides, and everybody got used to the idea of taking pills that really were effective. So as the drug companies begin to exploit this new market and to try to jump on the bandwagon and discover new therapeutic interventions, a French company named Rome Poulenc picks up on this drug that's been lying there and thinks, first of all, well, If you give your kid Dramamine before a journey, not only do they maybe not throw up in the car, but they get pretty drowsy, right? So one of the side effects of antihistamines as a class of drugs is that they make you somewhat drowsy. The initial thought was, well, maybe we can use this in preparing people for operations, uh, an anxiety-producing event for most of us. Not only that, but general anesthetic is one of the great breakthroughs of 19th century medicine, but it's poisonous. Um, if you have ever, ever had general anesthesia, you will know for a day or two or three afterwards, you feel pretty damn lousy until your body manages to excrete the remnants of it. You're better. So perhaps they thought this could act as a kind of catalyst. It would reduce the amount of anesthetic you'd need. Okay. And then antihistamines also useful with allergies and itching and so on. So perhaps it might be useful for eczema or other skin disorders. So they're exploring this range of things in an era where there's essentially no oversight or controls over how drugs get experimented uh, with. Well, some of this drug finds its way to a French naval surgeon who uses it on his patients, and he notices they become abnormally calm and indifferent to what's going on around them. He says, oh, this is like a chemical lobotomy. Right. Well, lobotomy just won the Nobel Prize. It was not the discredited thing that we think of it today. It seemed to be a grand breakthrough. And so he said to somebody he knew in, in a Parisian mental hospital, you know, you should try this on your patients and see what happens. So in that accidental way, the drug got Pride there. It made its way to North America at a time when Americans tended to distrust medical science coming out of Europe because they thought they were better than that. 
but it made its way through French Canada, similarly French-speaking, and so they got hold of supply of the drug and, again, tried it, and the initial results seemed enormously promising, and that's what launched it and made it a drug primarily used for psychiatric conditions. Although, in the late 1950s, if you go through pediatric journals, journals of research on diseases of children, you'll find advertisements for Thorazine as an antiemetic to give your child. If you know what we now know about the side effects of this drug, that makes your hair stand on it. But nonetheless, so it gets to market. Similarly, antidepressants, how do those come about? Well, there are experiments with a drug called Ipronizid as a treatment for tuberculosis. So you've got a bunch of desperately ill patients with TB heading towards death, understandably very depressed and their mood is down and they're feeling awful. Given this drug, they start dancing in the halls. They're happy. And so that's how very indirectly the first antidepressant arrives on the scene. So, so these drugs appear that way. Initially, the standards at that point for determining whether a drug is safe and effective are much lower than the hurdles we try to put up at least now. And many of the early reports on these drugs are essentially anecdotal. I treated X, Y, and Z with this drug, and they stopped hallucinating or they became much less depressed. As we got more control trials available, the efficacy of these, or the apparent efficacy of these drugs declined a great deal. And it also, although it took a very long time for it to be fully recognized, we also began to see that the trade-off for using these drugs was potentially very serious side effect. So with antipsychotics, for example, uh, yes, in a, some patients, but by no means all, the hallucinations and delusions damped down, but people develop the symptoms of Parkinson's disease, or they, be, they start developing unusual jerky movements of the face and the extremities, uh, making noises that disrupt things, or they become incredibly restless and they're pacing all the time and that drives people around them pretty much to distraction. So anyway, I've talked for a long time, but you may have further questions based well, on that. Well, it's interesting, you know, that story you just told, there's sort of an intellectual history around uh, how we understand the, the etiology and the treatment of mental illness. And it seems like sometimes it's like trial and error that leads to some promise, which then leads to the development of some causal theory, right? So in this case, right, the whole mm -hmm. brain chemical theory kind of yes. came yeah. almost after these trial and error successes. Afterwards, but yes. then in other That's cases, exactly. it's like the germ theory led to this mm -hmm. whole movement where they would remove people's teeth and tonsils and organs yeah. and so forth. So it, the way in which the, the science plays out is very, and this yeah. is true, of course, in general medicine as well. I mean, one of the great breakthroughs of early 20th century medicine was the discovery of insulin and its role in diabetes, which transformed diabetes from a death sentence to a chronic illness. And that still remains the case because we still can't cure diabetes. But prior to that, there'd been all kinds of extreme diets and various other interventions used that purported to cure the disease, but really couldn't. 
Once we discovered the role of insulin and we could discover a way to manufacture it in reliable quantities, that's a situation where the pathology leads to the treatment, leads to a good deal of success. Again, symptomatic, not curative, but as I've stressed, that's not something we should minimize. Now, oddly enough, um, the discovery of insulin, which was such a boon in general medicine for that subclass of patients, was adopted by psychiatry in the early 1930s. And in a way that long-term we know was very unfortunate and counterproductive. But at the time, the person who introduced it claimed that he was curing 80% of schizophrenia. And his work was lauded. It spread very quickly from Europe to North America. He actually, since he was Jewish and at severe risk of being murdered by the Nazis, relocated here. And insulin, given in excess to you or me, or actually to anybody, will put you into a coma. And there'd been experiments with the newly discovered barbiturates putting people into deep sleep. But insulin coma was something different. You could put people into this artificial hibernation, if you like. They sometimes had seizures while that was going on. It was a very dangerous phenomenon because if the coma became too deep, it was irreversible and you died. So you had to be monitored all the time. The thought was that if you took the brain out of its constant interaction with the world, maybe it would recuperate. Or in the words of Sackle, who invented this technique, he thought it actually killed brain cells to use this treatment. But it's selectively, so he claimed, with no scientific basis whatsoever, selectively killed the brain cells that caused your schizophrenia. And it did that by depriving them of oxygen, because that's what happened when you went into the, the coma. And so for, oh, um, 20 years or so, until the late 1950s, insulin coma units spread all across the country and indeed in Europe. You could bring people out of the coma, usually if you were, unless you made a mistake, by giving them glucose, and then they came back. And people would have multiple comas of this sort. For example, the subject of A, a Beautiful Mind, the founder of game, yeah. game Theory, uh, when he went mad, was given multiple insulin comas, and indeed was slated to get a lobotomy at one point. Yeah, I've, I met him in a number of occasions, oh, and he, he definitely seemed uh, very, you know, withdrawn, and, you know, yeah. have to wonder if yeah. there was lasting damage from from all that treatment. Oh, I think there there very clearly was. I mean, he was mentally ill for a very long time, and I think his recovery was at best only partial. He was actually a figure on the Princeton campus when I was there as a graduate student. So, But this is an example of how, in the way you described, there's sort of an empirical leap. Maybe we can use this and see if it works. And one of the problems I uh, point out, it's, it's a different world now, but from the, 19, the 1830s through well into the 1960s, the dominant response, not just here but elsewhere, to serious mental illness was to lock people up in mental yeah. hospitals or asylums. And the, what happened in that instance was these people were designated as, as mad, as no longer capable of rational thought. Their ideas and their own wishes were seen as product of their mental illness, and they were shut up, really, in a double sense. They were locked away, away from outside 
view, but their voices were also stifled. They couldn't speak, or if they did speak, it was ignored. And when I, when my book is called Desperate Remedies, that attempts to capture something about mental illness more generally. It's not just the desperation of the patients we're talking about. It's the desperation of their family members and everybody close to them in the face of the disasters. And the treatment professionals as well. It's the desperation of the doctors. Yeah. Yes, there are cynical people to be found in every profession, but many psychiatrists genuinely seek to help their patients. They see themselves as part of a healing profession. In the face of repeated failure, there's a lot of pressure to come up with something that works better. And in an environment where you have captive patients and no adequate controls on what you try with them, uh, that's an environment that easily fostered therapeutic experimentation. You referred earlier to the way in which germ theory produced deeply unfortunate effects, to put it mildly, in the case of psychiatric patients. The argument was that most illness was seen then in the bacteriological germ theory kind of model. But there were some diseases that were very resistant to having a pathology unfold. And the idea spread that perhaps what was going on with madness is chronic low-grade infections in your body, which you were overlooking, were spreading poisons, toxins, into your bloodstream and your lymph. Those were reaching the brain. That was one. Mm. So the symptoms of mental illness were really an epiphenomenon. They were the cause of the systemic poisoning going on. No, no I, think to, I, think today, well, I think today we, we, we would say there's, there's some truth to that, right? I mean, we're now increasingly seeing more and more Potentially, infectious agents. People with, yeah. You know, how inflammation does mm. bad things to our bodies. So this isn't, we're talking about the 19 teens and 20s and 30s. It's an era before antibiotics. What are you going to do if you think infections are the cause? Well, you've got new technology. For example, you've got x-rays. So you can see impacted teeth, infected teeth. You've got blood uh, sampling. So you can claim that you're finding bacteria, right? You can sample the stomach and see its contents. And lo and behold, there are bacteria in the stomach. There are bacteria in your stomach and in mine and in our intestines. I mean, it's nature of, our, of ourselves as, as uh, biological creatures. So you have to remove the infection since you can't cure it with a pill. Surgical bacteriology, as it's called. First port of call, so to speak, is teeth. They're adjacent to the brain. There's lots of people have infected teeth, particularly back then, but even now. Pull them out doesn't seem to produce cures. Does that mean our theory is wrong? Well, how about tonsils? You know, they're adjacent and they're all people often have sore throats. I'm suffering from one myself today, uh, which has been very resistant to treatment. So you, you remove tonsils, still doesn't work. Do you abandon the theory? Not if you're Henry Cotton, who's the yeah. enthusiast for this. You've swallowed those germs. So now we go down the gut. And we take out stomachs, and we take out spleens, and we take out colons. And oddly enough, 70% of the patients we operate on are women, and we remove their wounds. We have lots of targets for surgery. And we always think that if it hasn't worked, it's because there's other lingering infection we haven't found yet. So once you're caught in that world, it's very difficult to disconfirm your theory and very easy for you to keep going down that pathway. And the result was hundreds of deaths, thousands of main people in New Jersey and elsewhere where people followed Cotton's doctrines. 
So yeah, there's there are many examples of desperate remedies that we can point to. The problem is this happens even in the present. For example, something I think all of us dread as we get older is the prospect of dementia of Alzheimer's disease. And there's enormous pressure to find something. We we have some sense. We know what goes on in the brains of people with Alzheimer's, but not only it turns out with people with Alzheimer's, but the development of these plaques, for example, that was Alzheimer discovered that, which is how the disease got its name, back in the very early 20th century. And recently, we've had two treatments very controversially approved by the FDA uh, against scientific advice, I might add, that attack these plaques, although it's not clear at the moment whether the plaques cause the disease or one of the consequences of the disease. And it's not clear. The data is very uncertain that removing these plaques will, in fact, alter the course. We get tiny effects at the cost of brain swelling and possible brain hemorrhages and sometimes death. And yet the desperation of the doctors, the relatives, the patients is very real. I have a close friend in England whose wife is suffering from rapidly developing Alzheimer's. And I get these heart-rending emails from him of trying to cope with somebody who not only has lost her memory, but has become physically violent and extraordinarily hard to manage. These are examples of how that sort of circumstance leads us to invest undue hopes in potential cures and to license things that may actually worsen rather than help the situation. We simply don't know enough yet, but the evidence on which these drugs has been approved have been approved is is really fraught with problems, I think. So, you know, I teach I teach a course I teach a course called Data and Decisions. And one of the big things that we spend time on is confirmation bias. And yes. it seems like, you know, the book is almost like a series of case studies of confirmation bias, right? And so you have all these yeah. examples, not just with Henry Cotton, but also right with the lobotomy doctors and yeah. the the ECT, right? All of these different treatments, the advocates of these remedies, they seem to downplay any kind of negative consequences. They don't seem yeah. to track the patients after the intervention and th- they don't have any kind of control groups. And so when you look at this, you're like, right. of course, this is a for mm-hmm. bad science. And I guess, so I guess the question yeah. is, is, are the, is psychiatry different from other areas of medicine? I mean, you referred to it as sort of the stepchild of medicine. Is it mm-hmm. that psychiatry is different? Is it that maybe um, like, the patient group, as you pointed out, was there just weren't checks and balances in the way that you might have in, in, in other domains? Or is it just a question of the desperation that people have? Because people are desperate you know, to cure cancer as I, well. And, but yeah, we don't, exactly. if somebody, if somebody oh. offers Laetrile, you know, we think they're nuts, right? I was about to say exactly that. I think for certain reasons, it's perhaps more prevalent in psychiatry, but there are certainly plentiful examples in medicine. Cancer or the cancers, because as with mental illness, there isn't a single one of them. There's a range. But yes, those are things where very often our interventions, I mean, chemotherapy, for example, by its very nature is a poisonous assault on the body, and you hope it kills the cancer cells before it kills you or makes your life so intolerable that you can't continue. I remember many, many years ago, Martin Luther King's 
widow came down with terminal cancer and her doctors told her there was nothing more she could do. And she went south of the border into Mexico and got lateral. And of course, it didn't work and she died. So, you know, multiple sclerosis, there are, there are a range of conditions which are heartrending and awful and for which are available interventions in conventional medicine are not that good. And then the temptation is to find other things. And it's may even be in cases where we have treatments that somewhat work but aren't terribly reliable. I'm thinking of the case of Steve Jobs, whose particular cancer, had he had surgery right away, was of a sort that potentially was curable. But what did he do? He went into new age medicine, he tried diet, he tried this, he tried that. Sure, but we call that alternative medicine, right? That's not at the heart of the clinical practice. different, Different things. And of course, alternative medicine involves a whole range of things under that umbrella, Chinese and Indian medicine, faith healing. I mean, there's just a, the homeopathy. There, there are a whole range of these options. And I think when people are desperate and when they hear that conventional medicine can't do anything further from them, there's a temptation, a very strong temptation that many fall prey to, to embrace these because what's the alternative? But these are not um, professors of medicine or professors who are, who are the primary advocates of these <laughs> interventions, usually. right? I mean, you can find anti-vax doctors. They do exist I mean, with real MDs and sometimes professional appointments. Uh, you can find people touting various remedies for chronic fatigue syndrome, for example. And they often, right? And they're at odds with the great bulk of the profession and its findings. But they have a loyal following among patients who've been disappointed with conventional medicine or been told, for example, with chronic fatigue, that maybe their symptoms are psychiatric in nature, not physical. And that's something they find completely unacceptable. And so they run to these alternatives and they embrace the physicians who, are, who tell them what they want to hear. It's a confirmation bias thing again, if you like, in a different kind of setting. Well, now, part of the book is really a history of the rise and fall, really the fall, because you left the the rise part out of it, and that's covered in previous work of institutionalization. And so I think when you walk through the streets of San Francisco, right, you see the consequences of deinstitutionalization, but most people don't really understand that story. And I think we had, I think, half a million people in state institutions at one point in the United States. More than that, actually, but. Most people forget that the word asylum, this was seen as progress, right? So prior to these institutions, right. the mad were left to the to the poorhouse or left to the prisons. I mean, you know, Bedlam. Right. Bedlam was, was uh, I guess, one of the earliest yeah. of these right. asylums. Could you talk a bit about, right, first of all, why, how, how did this system of institutionalization come about? And yes. how did it, why did it disappear so quickly? Yeah, it is a very remarkable thing. So beginning in the... There, there are a few antecedents of the idea of putting mentally ill people in an institution that separates them from society. But those were really more efforts to keep problematic people out of circulation, mm-hmm. damp down the more serious problems they caused. But the movement to build vast networks of asylums that were paid for by the public via taxes and patients in them were supported by public subventions. They therefore became, in the words of the 19th century, 
pauper lunatics, right? And wasn't, wasn't this at one point like the top? I mean, I think you mentioned it was like the yeah, number one the most, public expenditure the item. chunk of state budgets. For example, yeah. in 1950 in New York State, if you looked at not the capital budget, but the current expenditures, 30% of the state's budget went on mental yeah. hospitals. So they were founded in the early 19th century. In America, a very large role was played rather remarkably by a woman named Dorothea Dix at a time when women didn't have the vote and weren't regarded as political actors. She was the moral entrepreneur that traveled the whole length and breadth of the United States at one point, fording the Mississippi when it was a mile and a half wide on horseback. An extraordinary person uh, who basically emotionally blackmailed state legislatures to provide the money to rescue the mentally ill from the poorhouse, from the attic, from the pigsty, and from the jail, and put them into a curative institution. And when asylums arrived on the scene, the word asylum had a positive connotation. Yeah. It removed you from the cares of the world. It provided you with a, a bit of emotional distancing and relief that maybe would cure you. And it was felt that in those institutions, you could coax people back to sanity using techniques that were roughly called moral treatment. So. This was a period of enormous optimism, and Dix used those statistics saying that we can cure 70-80% of the mentally ill if we put them in these institutions promptly, we've got to build them, and then we'll transform tax eaters into taxpayers. And on that basis, asylums were created, and the expectation was large numbers of cures. In reality, psychiatry, which was a profession born from the asylum, couldn't deliver what it promised. And by the end of the 19th century, the effects of that were that more each year, even though some people got better, it's important to remember that. It wasn't that nobody ever came out of the asylum, but it was 30 or 35%, not 70 or 80%. And the ones that laid, stayed behind came to form an ever larger fraction of the population of these places. So asylums grew from 100 patients or 120 patients to 1,000 to 5,000 or in the case of Milledgeville in Georgia, into 10, 12,000 patients. They were, it was a town. You and, call them mausoleums of the mad, right? Yeah. So they were places where once you got in, if you didn't get out in the first 12 months, where you were probably going to exit was in a pine box. And indeed, many of these asylums have graveyards out there. I mean, they've largely disappeared now. So asylums remain the central answer to the problem of what to do about the serious mentally ill all the way through into past the middle of the 20th century. In 1955, the peak year for the United States, state and county mental hospitals on any given day had about 560,000 patients in them, a lot. When we think our population's doubled since then, we should have over a million people in our mental hospitals. In fact, it's fewer than 40,000 who are institutionalized. I, mean, I think you mentioned so that the, the Los, Los Angeles, I, I think you mentioned that yeah. the Los Angeles County Jail is probably the, the, the largest yes. uh, mental institution in, in the country. So this is one of those bizarre cycles that the history has gone through. We build the asylums to rescue people from the gutter and the prison and the jail and put them in a therapeutic environment. The therapeutic environment deteriorates and indeed becomes anti-therapeutic in many ways. But then beginning slowly in the late 1950s, but much more expeditiously from the late 1960s onwards, we empty these hospitals out. 
and we don't put anything in their place. And so now, if you look and you say, well, where have all these patients gone? Some of them have been absorbed back into intact families where they're a serious burden, but it's sort of hidden from the rest of us. It falls mainly, of course, on women who become their carers and drop out of the workforce to deal with this. But many others, there either, either isn't an intact family or the intact family wearies of the problems and they're ejected. They end up in the gutter. They end up in board and care homes and flop houses, and they end up increasingly in prisons. And so we have this cycle where they get a bit of contact with a psychiatrist for a time, and they're prescribed some pills, which once they're discharged, they may or may not take, and that may or may not work in their case. And then they create so much trouble and petty infractions, or even more serious infractions, and they end up being jailed on criminal charges. And then they're released from the jail and the cycle kind of repeat. And the degradation of the environment in our cities is becoming a huge political problem. You see it, New York gets its new mayor. He announces this draconian policy directed at the homeless, including the homeless mentally ill. Karen Bass gets elected in Los Angeles as the mayor. Immediately, that's her very first priority. Huge problems up in Los Angeles around this problem. Problems in Portland. The new governor of Oregon has just announced homelessness is now you know, going to be my top priority. These are all the consequences of what happened in the 60s and 70s when we demolished these places or ejected people from them or refused to admit them in the first place and did not provide the kind of infrastructure in the community that might have made community care work. I should say that my very first book, which was published at the end of 1976, at a time when this was being hailed as a great reform, specifically said that exactly this was going to happen. It takes gives me no pleasure nearly 50 years on to go, hey, I told you this was coming, but I did. And politically, it was interesting because the deinstitutionalization movement attracted both sides of politics. On the left, there were people who read about all the horrors, some of which I discuss in Desperate Remedies of what was going on in mental hospitals, who read their Irving Goffman's book, Asylums, talking about mental hospitals as total institutions that dehumanized and destroyed their patients. So they wanted the patients out because they were in this dehumanizing environment that encouraged pathology. And of course, Ken Kesey's book, right, which I think right. had a huge yeah. impact what, on the Whoever the cook is and especially the movie. Yeah. Uh, when I taught a class called Madness in the Movies, I used to show a lot of films. That was one that today's students all had, virtually yeah. all had seen. And there are not many movies from the 70s that today's youth will have seen, but they had seen that one. So yeah, that was very powerful in generating that. And on the right, I mean, and with Ronald Reagan as the post, poster charge, uh, child for this, when he's governor of California, he says, we're going to shut these places down. And for once, he wasn't telling a fib. He did a lot to make sure that happened. But interestingly, Jerry Brown, who followed him, followed exactly the same policy. And I remember reading Jerry saying, oh, I've read Thomas Sass and I embrace everything he said. Well, this notion that mental illness is a myth is either a nasty play on words or it's sheer foolishness. 
I get it that it may or may not be a disease in the same sense as physical illness. But the idea that there isn't something called serious mental disturbance, if you prefer that language, seems to me perverse and quite wrong. And it was a grave disappointment. I mean, Saz, Saz did draw, draw attention to the abuses of psychiatry and in some ways had a salutary effect for a while. But it wasn't a surprise for me when he ultimately joined forces with Scientology, you know, which describes psychiatry as toxic and an industry of death. That, for all the, all the flaws and all the problems that my book exposes, that's not a position I would take. And it's, right. it's very important to say that. Well, you highlight some other things that were going on that drove the deinstitutionalization movement, in particular, some aspects of the Great Society. And I guess what's surprising is that this was not driven primarily by developments inside the field of, of psychiatry, right? This was really very much, yeah. there's a lot of economics around it. Yes, huge amount. Now, a couple of things we haven't had a chance to really address, and I'm going to talk very glibly and quickly about them. American psychiatry after World War II became very different than psychiatry mm -hmm. most other places. It was dominated for about a quarter century by psychoanalysis, by Freud's ideas, and um, by uh, psychological treatment and psychological explanations of mental illness. And what developed after World War II is a huge upsurge in outpatient psychiatric treatment, treating patients who weren't so seriously disturbed as they that they ended up in the mental hospital. So that was one branch of the profession. It was the most lucrative and the highest status because it had generally well-paying patients as its, as that, its that, so that So that expanded the scope of mental illness, right? So that, yes, you know, we're, 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 we're all kind of, a lot yeah. more. Oh, yeah, yeah. And there was an academic psychiatry that was growing in this period as well. So there are those two branches. But then there's the most despised branch of what is not a generally highly regarded medical subspecialty. And those are the people in the mental hospitals coping mm -hmm. with a half million and more patients with very inadequate resources and no real treatments until the drugs came along, and even then only partially effective. So that clearly tells part of the tale. But you're right. One of my arguments is precisely that what made this whole movement possible and attractive to the states was the enactment of great society programs. It was this completely unintentional side effect. It wasn't as though some grand conspiracy here. But once you enacted Medicare and Medicaid, here was the deal. In America, mental patients in mental hospitals always fallen on the state budgets. They were a state-by-state -state problem. If you were in a mental hospital, Sacramento paid, or Albany paid, or depending on where you were, what state you were in, but always it was a state. If the patients moved outside the hospital, they became a federal charge. They could go on Medicare and Medicaid, and later on they could go on Supplemental Security Income, SSI, the expansion of Social Security in the early 70s to encompass people with disabilities, including mental disability. So for the first time, these people had a check attached, and that's what fueled the rise of board and care homes and welfare hotels and allowed the dumping out of patients. But the problem with that, of course, is that 
there a isn't enough decent accommodation b there's no controls over that and if you're running one of those places the less you spend on the patient the more money's left for you so the temptation is for, for mistreatment and then the sheer numbers of patients start to overwhelm even that system and that's when we get the homelessness crisis which is driven of course not just by the problems of the mentally ill in California as we know to our cost housing is an unbearable uh, drain on poor people's budgets and uh, the margin between being able to afford squalid accommodation and no ho no home at all is is very tight and it's easy to fall off those things but estimates are 30 or 40% of the homeless are people with serious mental illness problems. So they're non-trivial and very often the most threatening and the most disruptive element of that thing. So be able to move bodies off one budget onto another was important. And then over time when we got welfare reform under both the Republicans and under Mr. Clinton, those federal supports began to be knocked away or become much less adequate. And so that adds a further twist to the story of neglect and so forth. So once you've created a huge problem like that, fixing it is enormously complicated after the fact. The reality was there were enough voices being raised in the late 70s, early 80s about the defects that we should have addressed those issues now, but it was politically inexpedient. And yes, all this happened behind the backs of psychiatry. Importantly, Academic psychiatrists were increasingly in bed with the pharmaceutical industry, with the drugs industry. They were getting large grants to run drug trials. The medical school deans loved them because they were bringing all this money in. They weren't interested in the hospitalized population. The people who developed office-based practices with other forms of mental disorder didn't have any interest in defending the mental hospital. And the ones who tried from within were dismissed as self-interested. So there it was. We could push inadvertently into a mess, which is what we present face, I think. Now, I think when a lot of people look back on the period where lobotomies were the dominant form of intervention, you know, it's easy mm -hmm. for us to kind of be smug about it and say, well, you know, we've, yeah. we've made a lot of progress and we, you know, we understand the scientific method and RCT and so forth. But you point out that, you know, maybe a lot of that progress is illusory and that a lot of the dominant view is fueled also by conflicts of interest, by egos yeah. and budgets and so forth. Well, if you look, going back to a point you made earlier that I didn't adequately respond to, but the drugs revolution really transformed psychiatry in very important ways and lost in the shuffle early was the drawbacks of these new treatments and their limitation. What happened though was that rapidly the psychoanalytic dimension that I talked about fell away. Yeah, It was replaced by a re-emergence re of a biological explanation of mental illness rooted on in the idea that it was all brain disease. And Fueling that and reflecting that at the same time, NIMH, the National Institute of Mental Health in Washington, increasingly jumped on that bandwagon. George Bush, the first, the less bad, in my, my view, announced that the 1990s were going to be the decade of the brain. Obama had a similar announcement about an initiative focused on the brain. Focusing on the brain was going to solve things. 
Now, once we discovered the drugs, we wanted to know, well, why do they have these effects? And does this show us anything about the origins of mental illness? So early on, the idea was that defects of dopamine, one of the newly discovered neurotransmitters, were the reason for schizophrenia. We now know that's scientifically not defensible. In the 1990s, when there were efforts to market drugs like Prozac, we were told that schizophrenia was all the matter, all a problem of not having enough serotonin, serotonin sloshing around in our brains. Again, that scientific nonsense, but very powerful marketing copy. Patients or families, rather, who'd been blamed for their own child's mental illness because it was their mm-hmm. their toilet training and their upbringing jumped on the idea that, hey, this was actually, no, this is a biological problem. And it meant it was a real illness, not something they were faking if you were a patient. So those ideas spread. NIMH then starts to fund neuroscience and genetics, because genetics has reemerged as a possible reason for why. And we all are aware families somehow seem to have higher proportions, some families seem to have higher proportions of mentally ill members. So, and family studies had seemed to suggest that there was a strong genetic component to mental illness. Well, if we look at the neuroscience, we've learned a lot more about the brain than we knew in the early 1950s when we thought everything was electrical. We now understand uh, neurochemistry is a huge part of the picture. On the other hand, if you ask, has all that progress in basic understanding to date led to any therapeutic advances? The answer is no. If we look at genetics, the problem's even more strange. We really, people really did think that we would find a gene or a set of genes for schizophrenia or for major depression. And we had PCR technology allowed us to reproduce bits of of the genetic code. And we decoded the human genome in 2003, more or less. And so the expectation was, well, now we'll discover genes for schizophrenia, genes for bipolar disorder genes. We haven't. In fact, the genetic research suggests that mental illness is one of the least genetically programmable mm-hmm. forms of disease, if you like. And there doesn't, while the, some hundreds of genetic variations produce an increased susceptibility, it's very far from being a robust causal thing. Moreover, the boundaries between what we have been taught are separate conditions, bipolar, major depression, schizophrenia, don't hold up when set aside the genetic evidence. There's huge overlaps here. And so the pictures become very clouded and nobody would argue now, well, I I shouldn't say nobody, there are always cranks who will argue this, but the evidence is that there are no Mendelian genes for Mm -hmm. these things. There are things that may increase your susceptibility. So if you add together hundreds and hundreds of these variants, you can account for maybe 7 or 8% of the variants, which ain't very much. You can say if you have these genetic differences, you're perhaps three times as likely to become schizophrenic. Well, let me put that in context because I've seen suggestions that we do that to screen people in childhood Mm -hmm. to figure out who's more likely to become schizophrenic. For the average person, the odds of being given a diagnosis of schizophrenia in a lifetime are about one in 100. Three times as likely 
if you have all these genetic, this batch of genetic things. So now three out of a hundred people are going to go on to develop schizophrenia. Now your 10-year-old daughter or my 10-year-old son is given this diagnosis. What's going to happen to that child as their life proceeds? Huge amounts of anxiety, lots of increased Mm -hmm. pressure, stigmatization, being cut off from all sorts of things, because stigma is one of the great constants of mental illness, in my view, across time. And it's one of the things, you know, we've talked rather glibly about psychiatry as the stepchild of medicine. In a certain sense, that's the way the stigma bleeds out from not just the patient, but to the families and also to the professionals who treat it. We all, perhaps even the historians who write about it, we all get tarred with this brush of the recoil that most of us feel when confronted with serious forms of mental disorder. So this is a grand puzzle. It's one of the things that's kept me attracted to this area of study, as I didn't expect to be when I started out in the field for half a century. It's such a pervasive thing. It involves so much suffering. It is so socially consequential. And it's such a hard puzzle to deal with, not just to understand its ultimate origins, because we may never get there, but even to get somewhat effective treatments. I think it's plain, for example, if we go all the way back to those very early asylums I talked about that were so optimistic, that small therapeutic institutions headed by somebody with charisma who was convinced he was going to cure actually did, maybe through a placebo effect, have positive effects on on the people in them. But the problem was you couldn't scale that up. You couldn't repeat it year after year. Many mental patients didn't get better, and over time, more and more of those chronic patients filled the beds. It became harder and harder to sustain optimism. Budgets tended to be cut. And so you got into this vicious circle of things going backwards. So sometimes those were purely environmental, social, psychological kinds of interventions. Obviously, as I've stressed, the drugs for some patients, not a huge fraction, but for some patients, really are life-saving. They transform existence. And the side effects they get are manageable and bearable. But for lots of patients, they're not. For example, 2005, New England Journal of Medicine published something called the Katie Study. It was a study funded by NMH, not the drug companies, and it compared three modern antipsychotics with one old one from the 1950s. Were the new ones better than the old one? What were their side effects? Had they alleviated the terrible side effects of the early drugs? So first answer, not better on the whole. Second answer, side effects overlap, but there are a whole new set of horrible side effects that come with second generation drugs. For example, putting on 30, 40, 50, 60 pounds in the course of a year and developing metabolic disorders, diabetes, and heart disease. Okay, that's a real problem. But the more interesting for me, what finding of that was Looking at these four drugs, and in this trial, between 67 and 82% of the patients, depending on which drug they were on, dropped out of the trial, either because the drug wasn't working or because they couldn't stand the side effect. Mm-hmm. So that gives you a sense that you know you have a third, perhaps, of patients who, for whom these sort of work and they're tolerable, 
but there's a large mass of patients for whom they don't do a whole lot of good. And the data on antidepressants is sadly somewhat similar. And on top of that, you can very easily be trapped into having to stay on those drugs because coming off them often produces terrible rebound effects and patients find that they simply can't discontinue. So you have to tread very carefully in this area, not be a Luddite and say, this never works and for no patient is it of any use. But you must be very conscious, it seems to me, about the uh, drawbacks. Well, one difference I would imagine would be there is that the newer generation of drugs are more expensive are still under patent, yeah, so yeah, they're probably yeah. promoted promoted right. much more aggressively. True of ten. Well, the other thing that's happened, Gregory, is drug companies made billions of dollars from these drugs. Antipsychotics and antidepressants were among the top ten classes of drugs for years and years and years. With respect to antidepressants, in particular, the drug companies owned the data on the clinical trials and they manipulated them. They were frauds. There's a file drawer effect, right? Negative data. They manipulated. You know, they massaged it to look more positive than it was. That sort of thing, and they were fined two, three billion dollars at a time for these kinds of things. Just as in other quarters, for example, Vioxx, there was a huge, you may remember, a huge controversy about that and some big fines attached. Those were sort of a cost of doing business. But starting in around 2010, big pharmaceutical houses have largely abandoned research on new psychiatric drugs. They've decided other arenas are more promising of profit. There aren't any new targets that have developed based on the neuroscience we've been talking about. And so they're kind of stuck. And so they've largely disbanded that effort to the extent we're going to have new compounds that are better than what we've got. And Lord knows we need them. I don't think drugs are ever going to be the whole answer, but they very well will prove to be part of the answer. If that's going to happen, it's going to come from small startups, not from the major pharmaceutical houses. And that's as critical as I am, Big Pharma and its machinations in this area, it is also the case that if they abandon this research, it's going to slow any prospects of better things coming along. Well, maybe we can end on a point that you just alluded to. You're a sociologist, and so you're aware as much as anyone of the kind of social nature of the human brain. And it's clear that our mental health, our mental makeup is a product not just of biology, but also of nurture, right? Of the environment in which we yes. evolve. And so mm-hmm. do you think that the we're going to move more away from this purely biological view of mental health? I mean, we see already, even mm-hmm. in, in the DSM, that trauma is being acknowledged. And when we discarded the whole Freudian psychoanalytic approach, we threw out kind of life history and all this other stuff. But is, is, will that make a comeback? And will a better, well, better understanding of sociology help us to understand mental health? I think we have to hope so, Gregory. I do think putting all your eggs in a basket, in a single basket, in a problem as complicated as this one, is an invitation to failure. And I think NIMH's policy has proved a failure. It's very interesting when Tom Insel who ran the NIMH until 2015 for about 12, 13 years. When he stepped down, he gave an interview to MIT in which he said, you've had control of this, and under my leadership, we funded some enormously cool science and cool scientists. 
in genetics and in neuroscience. And we've learned lots of interesting things. And he said, I've spent, oh, maybe upwards of $20 billion. And the needle in terms of the therapeutic environment or the fate of mental patients haven't moved a bit, nothing. So unfortunately, his successor is a neuroscientist whose primary work had been on the brains of mice and shows no sign of shifting away from this very brain-based singular approach to the problems of mental illness. But I doubt drugs will ever be the whole answer. I think it's also important to consider all sorts of environmental things and to consider ways in which we can provide the kinds of levels of social support that can mitigate the problems that come with this. In general, this whole biology social environment, whatever you want to go, psychology thing, it's a huge mistake. We're born with a remarkable brain here, but that brain remains malleable and plastic for decades. And it's a product not just of our biology, but of our social experience, of our environment. And the way our brains get wired are the product of that experience. And so the social and the biological can't be separated in that crude fashion. And the idea that it's all just the brain, well, which brain are we talking about here? The one you were born with or the one that's the product of all the experiences you've had? In which case, the social and the psychological are very much part of the scene here. Leon Eisenberg, Harvard professor, encapsulated this beautifully, I think, in a little aphorism I like mm. to quote. He said, we've moved from a brainless psychiatry to a mindless psychiatry during the course of my lifetime. So we moved from the Freudian era where nobody paid any attention to biology to the current era where we don't pay any attention to anything other than the brain. And that to me is just a foolish way to go. And one has to hope. I think, you know, when I talk with young psychiatrists who are training now, I think more and more of them are aware of this. Whether their lords and masters will recognize this, we shall see. But I hope so. Yeah, this wonderful image where you said that separating nature and nurture is like separating length and height of a rectangle when you're trying to compute its area, right? And, and so I love that image. Yeah, yeah, you can't. You just you simply. Uh, the world is is more interactive and complicated than those models would suggest. Well, so, Andrew, thank, anyway. thank you so much for joining me. There's really a whole bunch of wonderful books. If you're interested in the history of madness, if you're interested in the history of psychiatry, history of how we've treated, both in the medical and in the sociological sense, people with, with mental illness over time, you should definitely check out all of Andrew's books. Uh, most recent book is Desperate Remedies, Psychiatry's Turbulent Quest for to Cure Mental Illness. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you very much, Greg. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Appreciate you having me on. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.